Book Two, Chapter Eight of the Last Days of Pompeii. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rachel Trishka. Last Days of Pompeii by Edward G. Bulwer-Lytton. Book Two, Chapter Eight: The Solitude and Soliloquy of the Egyptian. His character analysed. We must go back a few hours in the progress of our story. At the first grey dawn of the day, which Glaucus had already marked with white, the Egyptian was seated, sleepless and alone, on the summit of the lofty and pyramidal tower which flanked his house. A tall parapet around it served as a wall, and conspired, with the height of the edifice and the gloomy trees that girded the mansion, to defy the prying eyes of curiosity or observation. A table, on which lay a scroll, filled with mystic figures, was before him. On high, the stars waxed dim and faint, and the shades of night melted from the sterile mountain tops. Only above Vesuvius there rested a deep and massy cloud, for which several days past had gathered darker and more solid over its summit. The struggle of night and day was more visible over the broad ocean, which stretched calm, like a gigantic lake, bounded by the circling shores that, covered with vines and foliage, and gleaming here and there with the white walls of sleeping cities, sloped to the scarce rippling waves. It was the hour above all others most sacred to the daring science of the Egyptian, the science which would read our changeful destinies in the stars. He had filled his scroll, he had noted the moment and the sign, and, leaning upon his hand, he had surrendered himself to the thoughts which his calculation excited. Again do the stars forewarn me. Some danger, then, assuredly waits me, said he, slowly. Some danger, violent and sudden in its nature. The stars wear for me the same mocking menace which, if our chronicles do not err, they were once for Paris, for him doomed to strive for all things, to enjoy none. All attacking, nothing gaining, battles without fruit, laurels without triumph, fame without success, at last made craven by his own superstitions, and slain like a dog by a tile from the hand of an old woman. Verily the stars flatter when they give me a type in this fall of war, when they promise to the ardour of my wisdom the same results as to the madness of his ambition. Perpetual exercise, no certain goal. The Sisyphus task mountain and the stone. The stone, the gloomy edge. It reminds me that I am threatened with somewhat of the same death as the Eparite. Let me look again. Beware, say the shining prophets, how thou passest under ancient roofs, or besieged walls, or overhanging cliffs. A stone hurled from above is charged by the curses of destiny against thee. And, at no distant date from this, comes the peril. But I cannot, of a certainty, read thee day and hour. Well, if my glass runs low, the sand shall sparkle to the last. Yet, if I escape this peril, I, if I escape, bright and clear as the moonlight tracks across the water glows the rest of my existence, I see honours, happiness, success, shining upon every billow of the dark gulf beneath which I must sink at last. What? then, with such destinies beyond the peril, 
Shall I succumb to the peril? My soul whispers hope. It sweeps exultingly beyond the boding hour. It reveals in the future its own courage as the fittest omen. If I were to perish so suddenly and so soon, the shadow of death would darken over me, and I should feel the icy resentment of my doom. My soul would express, in sadness and in gloom, its forecast of the dreary orcus. But it smiles, and assures me of deliverance. As he thus concluded his soliloquy, the Egyptian involuntarily rose. He paced rapidly the narrow space of the star-roofed floor, and, pausing at the parapet, looked again upon the grey and melancholy heavens. The chills of the faint dawn came refreshingly upon his brow, and gradually his mind resumed its natural and collected calm. He withdrew his gaze from the stars, as, one after one, they receded into the depths of heaven, and his eyes fell over the broad expanse below. Dim in the silence port of the city rose the mast of the galleys. Along that mart of luxury and labour was still the mighty hum. No lights, save here and there from before the columns of a temple, on the porticoes of the voiceless forum, broke the wan and fluctuating light of the struggling morn. From the heart of the torpid city, so soon to vibrate with a thousand passions, there came no sound. The streams of life circulated not. They lay locked under the ice of sleep. From the huge space of the amphitheatre, with its stony seats rising one above the other, coiled and drowned as some slumbering monster, rose a thin and ghastly mist, which gathered darker, and more dark, over the scattered foliage that gloomed in its vicinity. The city seemed as, after the awful change of seventeen ages, it seems now to the traveller, a city of the dead. The ocean itself, that serene and tideless sea, lay scarce less hushed, save that from its deep bosom came, softened by the distance, faint and regular murmur, like the breathing of its sleep, and curving far, as with outstretched arms, into the green and beautiful land, seemed unconsciously to clasp to its breast the city sloping to its margin. Stabiae, and Herculaneum, and Pompeii, those children and darlings of the deep. Ye slumber, said the Egyptian, as he scowled over the cities, the boast and flower of Campania. Ye slumber, would it the eternal repose of death? And ye now, jewels in the crown of the empire, so once were the cities of the Nile. Their greatness hath perished from them. They sleep amidst ruins, their palaces and their shrines are tombs, the serpent coils in the grass of their streets, the lizard basks in their solitary halls. By that mysterious law of nature, which humbles one to exalt the other, ye have thriven upon their ruins. Thou, haughty Rome, hast usurped the glories of Sestostris and Semiramis, thou art a robber clothing thyself in their spoils. And these, slaves in thy triumph, that I, the last son of forgotten monarchs, survey below, reservoirs of thine all-pervading power and luxury, I curse as I behold. The time shall come when Egypt shall be avenged, when the barbarian steed shall make his mane from the golden house of Nero, 
and thou that hast sown the wind with conquest shall reap the harvest in the whirlwind of desolation. As the Egyptian uttered a prediction which fate so fearfully fulfilled, a more solemn boding image of ill omen never occurred to the dreams of painter or poet. The morning light, which compels so wanly even the young cheek of beauty, gave his majestic and stately features almost the colours of the grave, with the dark hair falling massively around them, and the dark robes flowing loose and long, and the arm outstretched from the lofty eminence, and the glittering eyes, fierce with a savage gladness, half prophet and half fiend. He turned his gaze from the cities and the ocean. Before him lay the vineyards and meadows of the rich Campania, the gate and the walls, ancient, half palace of the city, seemed not to bound its extent. Villas and villages stretched on every side up the ascent of Vesuvius, not nearly then so steep or so lofty as at present. For, as Rome itself is built on an exhausted volcano, so in the similar security the inhabitants of the south tenanted the green and vine-clad places around a volcano whose fires had believed it rest forever. From the gate stretched the long street of tombs, various in size and architecture, by which, on that side, the city is as yet approached. Above all, rode the cloud-capped summit of the dread mountain, with the shadows, now dark, now light, betraying the mossy caverns and ashy rocks, which testified the past conflagrations, and might have prophesied, but man is blind, that which was to come. Difficult was it then and there to guess the causes why the tradition of the place wore so gloomy and stern a hue. Why, in those smiling plains, for miles around, Dubai, and Missinum, the poets had imagined the entrance and thresholds of their hell, their Archeron, and their failed stick. Why, in those flea-grey, now laughing with the vine, they place the battles of the gods, and suppose the daring titans to have sought the victory of heaven. Save, indeed, that yet, in yon seared and blasted summit, fancy might think to read the characters of the Olympian thunderbolt. But it was neither the ragged height of the still volcano, nor the fertility of the sloping fields, nor the melancholy avenue of tombs, nor the glittering villas of, the, of a polished and luxurious people, that now arrested the eye of the Egyptian. On one part of the landscape, the mountain of Vesuvius descended to the plain in a narrow and uncultivated ridge, broken here and there by jagged crags and copses of wild foliage. At the base of this lay a marshy and unwholesome pool, and the intent gaze of Arbuses caught the outline of some living form moving by the marshes, and stooping ever and anon as if to pluck its rank produce. Ho! said he aloud. I have, then, another companion in these unworldly night-watches. The witch of Vesuvius is abroad. What? Doth she, too, is a credulous imagine? Doth she, too, learn the law of the great stars? Has she been uttering full magic to the moon, or culling, as her pauses betoken, foul herds from the venomous marsh? Well, I must see this fellow labourer. 
whoever strives to know learns that no human law is despicable. Despicable only you, ye fat and bloated things, slaves of luxury, sluggards in thought, who, cultivating nothing but the barren sense, dream its poor soil can produce alike the myrtle and the laurel. No, the wise only can enjoy. To us only true luxury is given, when mind, brain, invention, experience, thought, learning, imagination, all contribute like rivers to swell the seas of sense. I only... Zabasis uttered the last and charmed words. His thoughts sank at once into a deep and more profound channel. The steps paused. He took not his eyes from the ground. Once or twice he smiled joyously, and then, as he turned from his place of vigil and sought his couch, he muttered, If death frowns so near, I will say at least that I have lived. I only shall be mine. The character of Arbuses is one of those intricate and varied webs, in which even the mind that sat within it was sometimes confused and perplexed. In him, the son of a fallen dynasty, the outcast of a sunken people, was that spirit of discontented pride, which ever rankles in one of a sterner mould, who feels himself inexorably shut from the sphere in which his father shone, and to which nature as well as birth no less entitled as himself. This sentiment hath no benevolence, to wars with society, it sees enemies in mankind. But with the sentiment did not go its common companion, poverty. Arbaces possessed wealth which equalled that of most of the Roman nobles, and this enabled him to gratify to the utmost the passions which had no outlet in business or ambition. Travelling from clime to clime, and beholding still Rome everywhere, he increased both his hatred of society and his passion for pleasure. He was in a vast prison, which, however, he could fill with the ministers of luxury. He could not escape from the prison, and his only object, therefore, was to give it the character of a palace. The Egyptians, from the earliest time, were devoted to the set joys of sense. Arbaces inherited both the appetite for sensuality and the glow of imagination which struck light from its rottenness. But still, unsocial in his pleasures, as in his graver pursuits, and brooking neither superior nor equal, he admitted few to his companionship, save the willing slaves of his profligacy. He was a solitary lord of a crowded harem, but, withal, he felt condemned to that satiety which is the constant curse of a man whose intellect is above their pursuit. And that which once had been the impulse of passion froze down the ordinance of custom. From the disappointments of sense he sought to raise himself by the cultivation of knowledge. But as it was not his object to serve mankind, so he despised that knowledge which is practically useful. His dark imagination loved to exercise itself in those more visionary and obscure researches, which are ever the most delightful to a wayward and solitary mind, and to which he himself was invited by the daring pride of his disposition and the mysterious traditions of his clime. Dismissing faith in the confused creeds of the heathen world, he reposed the greatest faith in the power of human wisdom. He did not know, perhaps no one in their age distinctly did, 
the limits which nature imposes upon our discoveries. Seeing that the higher we mount in knowledge, the more wonders we behold, he imagined that nature not only worked miracles in her ordinary course, but that she might, in the Kabbalah of some master soul, be diverted from that cause itself. Thus he pursued science, across her appointed boundaries, into the land of perplexity and shadow. From the truths of astronomy he wandered into astrological fallacy. From the secrets of chemistry he passed into the spectral labyrinth of magic. And he who could be sceptical as to the power of the gods was gradually superstitious as to the power of man. The cultivation of magic, carried at that day to a singular height among the would-be wise, was especially eastern in its origin. It was alien to the early philosophy of the Greeks, nor had it been received by them with favour until Ostenes, who accompanied the army of Xerxes, introduced, amongst the simple credulities of Helis, the solemn superstitions of Zoroaster. Under the Roman emperors it had become, however, neutralised at Rome, a meet subject for Juvenal's fiery wit. Intimately connected with magic was the worship of Isis, and the Egyptian religion was the means by which was extended the devotion to Egyptian sorcery. The Thergic, or benevolent magic, the Goetic, or dark and evil necromancy, were alike in the preeminent repute during the first century of the Christian era, and the marvels of Faustus are not comparable to those of Apollonius. Kings, courtiers, and sages all trembled before the professors of the dread science. Another least remarkable of his tribe was the most formidable and profound Arbaces. His fame and his discoveries were known to all the cultivators of magic. They even survived himself. But it was not by his real name that he was honoured by the sorcerer and the sage. His real name, indeed, was unknown in Italy. For Arbaces is not a genuinely Egyptian, but a Median appellation, which, in the admixture and unsettlement of the ancient races, had become common in the country of the Nile, and there were various reasons, not only of pride, but of policy, for a new he had conspired against the majesty of Rome, which induced him to conceal his true name and rank. But neither by the name he had borrowed from the Me nor by that which in the colleges of Egypt would have attested his origin from kings, did the cultivators of magic acknowledge the potent master. He received from their homage a more mystic appellation, and was long remembered in Magna Graecia and in the eastern plain by the name of Hermes, the lord of the flaming belt. His subtle speculations and boasted attributes of wisdom, recorded in various volumes, were among those tokens of the curious arts, which the Christian converts most joyfully, yet most fearfully, burnt at Ephesus, depriving posterity of the proofs of the cunning of the fiend. The conscience of Arbaces was solely of the intellect. It was awed by no moral laws. If man imposed those checks upon the herd, so he believed that man, by superior wisdom, could raise himself above them. If, he reasoned, I have the genius to impose laws, have I not the right to command my own creations? Still more, have I not the right to control, to evade, to scorn, the fabrications of yet meaner intellects than my own? 
Thus, if he were a villain, he justified his villainy by what ought to have made him virtuous, namely, the elevation of his capacities. Most men have more or less the passion for power. In Arbaces, that passion corresponded exactly to his character. It was not the passion for an external and brute authority. He desired not the purple in the faces, the insignia of vulgar command. His useful ambition, once foiled and defeated, scorn had supplied its place. His pride, his contempt for Rome, Rome, should become the synonym of the world. Rome, whose haughty name he regarded with the same disdain as that which Rome herself lavished upon the barbarian, did not permit him to aspire to sway over others, for that would render him at once the tall creature of the emperor. He, the son of the great race of Ramesses, he execute the order of, and receive his power from, another? The mere notion filled him with rage. But in rejecting an ambition that coveted nominal distinctions, he but indulged the more in the ambition to rule the heart. Honouring mental power as the greatest of earthly gift, he loved to feel that power palpably in himself by extending it over all whom he encountered. Thus he had ever sought the young, thus he had ever fascinated and controlled them. He loved to find subjects in men's souls, to rule over an invisible and immaterial empire. Had he been less sensual and less wealthy, he might have sought to become the founder of a new religion. As it was, his energies were checked by his pleasures. Besides, However, the vague log of this moral sway, vanity so dear to sages, he was influenced by a singular and dreamlike devotion to all that belonged to the mystic land his ancestors had swayed. Although he disbelieved in her deities, he believed in the allegories they represented, or rather he interpreted those allegories anew. He loved to keep alive the worship of Egypt, because he thus maintained the shadow in the recollection of the power. He loaded, therefore, the altars of Osiris and of Isis with regal donations, and was ever anxious to dignify their priesthood by new and wealthy converts. The vow taken, the priesthood embraced, he usually chose the comradeship of his pleasures from those whom he made his victims, partly because he thus secured to himself their secrecy, partly because he thus yet more confirmed to himself his peculiar power. Hence the motives of his conduct were pacities, strengthened as these were, in that instance, by his passion for Ione. He had seldom lived long in one place, but as he grew older, he grew more wearied of the excitement of new scenes, and he had sojourned among the delightful cities of Campania, for a period which surprised even himself. In fact, his pride somewhat crippled his choice of residence. His unsuccessful conspiracy excluded him from those burning climes which he deemed of right his own hereditary possession, in which now cowered, supine and sunken, under the wings of the Roman eagle. Rome herself was hateful to his indignant soul, nor did he love to find his riches rivalled by the minions of the court and cast into comparative poverty by the mighty magnificence of the court itself. The companion cities proffered to him all that his nature craved. 
the luxuries of an unequaled climate, the imaginative refinements of a voluptuous civilization. He was removed from the side of his superior wealth. He was without rivals to his riches. He was free from the spies of a jealous court. As long as he was rich, none pried into his conduct. He pursued the dark tenor of his ways, undisturbed and insecure. It is the curse of sensualists never to love till the pleasures of sense begin to pall. Their ardent youth is frittered away in countless desires. Their hearts are exhausted. So, ever chasing love, and taught by a restless imagination to exaggerate, perhaps, its charms, the Egyptian had spent all the glory of his years without attaining the object of his desires. The beauty of tomorrow succeeded the beauty of today, and the shadows bewildered him in his pursuit of the substance. When, two years before the present date, he beheld Ione, he saw, for the first time, one whom he imagined he could love. He stood, then, upon that bridge of life, from which man sees before him distinctly a wasted youth on one side, and the darkness of approaching age on the other. A time in which we are more than ever anxious, perhaps, to secure to ourselves, ere it be yet too late, whatever we have been taught to consider necessary to the enjoyment of a life for which the brighter half is gone. With an earnestness and a patience which he had never before commanded for his pleasures, Arbaces had devoted himself to win the heart of Ione. It did not content him to love, he desired to be loved. In this hope he had watched the expanding youth of the beautiful Neapolitan, and, knowing the influence that the mind possesses over those who are taught to cultivate the mind, he contributed willingly to form the genius and enlighten the intellect of Ione, in the hope that she would be thus able to appreciate what he felt would be his best claim to her affection, viz. a character which, however criminal and perverted, was rich in its original elements of strength and grandeur. When he felt that character to be acknowledged, he willingly allowed, nay, encouraged her, to mix among the idle votaries of pleasure, in the belief that her soul, fixed for higher commune, would miss the companionship of his own, and that, in comparison with others, she would learn to love herself. He had forgot that as the sun fly to the sun, so youth turns to youth, until his jealousy of Glaucus suddenly appraised him of his error. From that moment, though, as we have seen, he knew not the extent of his danger, a fiercer and more tumultuous direction was given to a passion long controlled. Nothing kindles the fire of love like the sprinkling of the anxieties of jealousy. It takes in a wilder, more resistless flame. It forgets its softness. It ceases to be tender. It assumes something of the intensity, of the ferocity, of hate. Arbaces resolved to lose no further time upon cautious and perilous preparations. He resolved to place an irrevocable barrier between himself and his rivals. He resolved to possess himself of the person of Ione, not that in his present love, so long nursed and fed by hopes purer than those of passion alone, he would have been contented with that mere possession. 
He desired the heart, the soul, no less than the beauty, of Ione. But he imagined that once separated by a daring crime from the rest of mankind, once bound to Ione by a tie that memory could not break, she would be driven to concentrate her thoughts on him, that his arts would complete the conquest, and that, according to the true moral of the Roman and the Sabine, the empire obtained by force would be cemented by gentler means. This resolution was yet more confirmed in him by his belief in the prophecies of the stars. They had long foretold to him this year, and even the present month, was the epoch of some dread disaster, menacing life itself. He was driven to a certain and limited date. He resolved to crowd, monarch-like, on his funeral pyre all that his soul held most dear. In his own words, if he were to die, he resolved to feel that he had lived, and that Ione should be his own. End of Book 2, Chapter 8 Recorded by Rachel Trisker, Australia